I like what Caitlin said. There's a song that I love. It's called The Resistance by Josh Garrels. And he says in it, and it runs through my mind all the time when I get a little bit uneasy or anxious. And he says, he makes this statement. He's got a lot of good lyrics in it. But one of the statements he makes is, My rest is a weapon against the oppression of man's obsession to control things. My rest is a weapon. You ever thought about your rest being a weapon, learning to live from a place of rest, whatever you do? I think that's what God wants for us, but uh, let's, why don't you just put your hand on your heart this morning. Lord, we just come to you this morning because we need your rest. And Lord Jesus, you said to us that all who labor and are heavy laden can come unto you and you will give us rest for our souls. And God, that rest is a weapon in a world God, that, uh, that seeks to put pressure on us, God, and, and to control everything. And ultimately, God, we know that we can't control anything, but God, we do, do know that you are in control. And so we give you our burdens, we give you our struggles, our fears, and you know every prayer request on every heart this morning. So we lift it up to you, God, whether it's sickness, brokenness, oppression, fear, anxiety, whatever it is, we lift it up to you this morning. And Holy Spirit, we just ask you to come over these next few moments, God, to bring healing in our hearts and in our bodies and in our minds. Lord God, to restore us, to bring us into that place of rest. And I believe that you will use your word this morning to bring us into a deeper rest because we have a greater revelation of who you are, God. So we ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I counsel different people and talk to different people. And one of the things that I come to realize in talking with lots of different people is not everybody has a really accurate view of God. Would you agree with that? And I would even venture to say that most, most Christians, their view of God is not completely accurate. And if the Bible teaches, and it does teach, that the truth is what ultimately sets us free, then it's a lie that disenfranchises us. It's a lie that brings us into greater measures of bondage. It's a lie that brings us up under anxiety. It's a lie that causes us to not be able to be in a place of rest. But when we see the truth of who God is, something changes. I told you the story, I think, last week, just when we were in our introduction, talking about the mercy of God. And the first time that I had a real encounter with God, it was one thing for me to read the Bible. It was one thing for me to see the Bible because everybody sort of reads the Bible through their own lens. And at first glance, they've got their own impressions of what God is. Maybe he's an angry dude on a cloud somewhere or really he's upset. Maybe he's a lot like your, your dad or your mom. And you get this image of God and you think he is a certain way. But I'm telling you right now, I've never met a person who had an encounter with Jesus who came to find out that Jesus was exactly who they thought he was. He's always different because he's always better. He's better than you think he is. And when you think about God, what you have to realize is that in, in the Old Testament, nobody really saw God. Even when Moses asked, asked to see God, what God did was he passed by when Moses was in the cleft of a rock and he showed him his back parts and he only got a glimpse of who God was. And people go to the Old Testament and they say, man, look at God. He's, he's angry. He's malicious. He's all of these things. But if you actually read what God says about himself in the Old Testament, he reveals himself as a merciful God, full of grace, full of compassion that is a forgiving God, that ultimately He is also a God of justice. And so you see these things going on, but then God says, you know what, you guys don't need to make any images. You don't need to make any idols, because if you make an image and you make an idol, you will probably make it to look like yourself. And so He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my own image so that you know beyond a shadow of doubt exactly what I'm like, and He sends us Jesus Christ. You want to know what God is like? You look to Jesus. The Word itself, the Bible itself, is not just given to us so that we can know the Bible. The Bible is given to us so that we can know Jesus. Amen. That's a good point right there. Because there's a whole lot of people, even in Jesus' days, there was a lot of guys who knew the Bible, but they didn't know the one who wrote the Bible. So it's possible to know Scripture from front to back and have a totally distorted view of God. But when you come to the Scripture and the Holy Spirit begins to bring it to life, who He is going to reveal to you is the person of Jesus Christ. So when we're praying and we're reading the Scripture, we're saying, Lord, we want to see a greater revelation of who Jesus is. We want to see Him. We want the eyes of our hearts to be open. Because when you see Jesus for who Jesus is, it will change who you are. And everything will change. And so I, I say that because I want to start a sermon series on the character of God. 
simply just the character of God. This message in particular is going to be called Partakers of the Divine Nature. But see, the end goal of the Christian life, when we talk about the character of God, the end goal of the Christian life is not simply to be a good person or, or, or anything like that. I mean, even though that's a part of it, that's an aspect of it. The end goal of the Christian life is not even to go to heaven when you die. The end goal of the Christian life is not to escape hell as great as that is. The end goal of the Christian life is that you are united to your Creator and you are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ as you are in right relationship with Him. Jesus said, this is eternal life that you know me. When you know Jesus, you have eternal life. You're already living in it, folks. Now, when you die, there's a transference of where you exist from here on out. But when you know Jesus Christ, you are living in eternal life. Eternal life is not a place that you go to. It's a person you know. Amen. Man, that's good stuff right there, Clay. So along this journey, the issue is, like I said, everybody has a skewed view of God. Not everybody, but most people have a skewed view of God. And I wrote down a few things, and I could have written down probably 50, but I want to give you a few signs that, that, that you have a wrong view of God, okay? Number one is you're, motiva you're motivated by shame instead of love. You're motivated by shame instead of love. And what I find is that people, people set up under these feelings of condemnation and guilt and shame. And really, they believe that God's opinion of them is determined on how much they prayed that week, whether or not their church attendance is good. We make a joke around here, you know, that God keeps a road book on church attendance and stuff like that. And somebody said, well, how about if I watch it online? I said, well, you know, if you watch online, it's only one quarter of a full church attendance. So he just gives you, you got to get forward to get a full church attendance. Obviously, that's a joke, right? We come to church at, here at City of Hope Church. I don't know about you, but the reason I come to church is because I love God and I love God's people. I don't come out of an obligation because somehow I'm going to get a check mark and God's going to love me more. God loves me more if I never, he loves me just as much as I, if I never walk through the doors. I don't walk through the doors to earn God's favor. I walk through the doors because I'm in God's favor and I love him and he loves me and I want to cultivate a greater relationship with him. Amen. So are you motivated in your life out of shame or are you motivated out of love? I don't do what I do for God because I'm up under some kind of condemnation thinking, man, if I don't do this, God's going to be mad at me. I do what I do for God because God has loved me so much that I've got none, no other choice than to give him my life and say, Lord, I love you in return. I want to do whatever I can do for you. Are you motivated by shame or are you motivated by love? That's how you recognize whether or not you may have a wrong view of God. We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. It's when you recognize how much God loves you that you come into a place where you're really set free. You're still struggling with addictions. You're still struggling with sins that you've not been able to let go of yet. I promise you, don't try to love God. Receive God's love for you. His, what He wants for you first is to receive His love for you and His mercy. Number two, you're scared of being outside of God's will instead of trusting that He's guiding you. When I talk to people, I mean, 99% of the time it's like, I just don't know if this is God's will. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And, and, and how will God show me? How will God reveal His will? And you, we can go through that because, you know, God reveals His will in Scripture. And then, but, but I've told people before, you know, the Bible, I, there wasn't a chapter and verse for whether or not I should marry Andrea, was there? So the Holy Spirit is given to us to lead us in, in these decisions as well. But here's what I need you to know about God's will. You, you're mistaking that God is some kind of taskmaster that wants you to figure out this big puzzle and this big mystery of your will. And if somehow you take one wrong step, you just fall off and you miss God's will for your life and everything is destroyed. Can I tell you that God is so loving and so good and so sovereign and so powerful that His, that His will for your life is not like a tightrope. It's like an interstate. You can shift lanes. You can move from side to side. Every now and then maybe you can hit the curb a little bit and hit the rumble strips. You know what I'm talking about? But he will guide you back on it because he's that good and you are his child and he loves you. He's got a plan for your life and there's nothing you can do to thwart that. There's nothing you can do to hinder that. He will take my mess ups. He will take my failures. He will take my faults. When I bruise my knee, he will pick me up, heal me and say, you ain't done nothing to destroy my plan for your life, son. And you get, a, you get this view of God that, oh my gosh, if I mess this one thing up, I'm going to miss it all. Now, the Lord is more powerful than that. And what we do is we learn to trust that even when we don't know it, even when we don't see Him working, we know that God is good enough. He's the one that is guiding me. Number three, you feel a need to defend the gospel instead of reveal the gospel. 
Now, right now in the day and age that we live in, a lot of times even when I preach, I'm preaching biblical views that run contrary to the world system because they're out there preaching a lot of crazy things in our world. Like, I t- you know, I've told you before, like right now it's very popular. That they're talking about chest feeding. Like, what even is that? You know what I'm talking about? And, and so, and so I, I got one laugh out of it. But the point is, there are things going on in our world that are blatantly contrary to not just, not just God, but human design itself. And so there are points when we have to defend the truth of God's Word, no doubt. We have to get into difficult conversations when we talk about sexuality, when we talk about uh, the way this world system is going, what people believe in and those things. And ultimately, we're not trying to be rude, but we do have to stand for truth. And sometimes that comes off as rude to people because the truth of the gospel can oftentimes be an offense. Amen. It can be. That's what the scripture says, that, that oftentimes the Bible, if you're preaching the gospel, it's going to be an offense. But what I want you to understand is it is not our goal to defend the gospel at all costs. It is our goal as Christian believers to reveal the gospel. It's not, we're just not just fighting, arguing. The gospel is not a point to be argued. It's a person to be revealed. And the greatest way that you're going to reveal it is not by arguing with somebody on Facebook or, or, or getting into some kind of a debate. You're actually, scientifically, it's proven that psychology says that when you get into those types of arguments, you actually harden the person against you. It's, it's just a fact, okay? And I trust the science on that, amen. Just kidding. So, what we do is... Rather than trying to fight with people and argue with people, we're looking to reveal this God of love. And the, the way that we're going to do, do a better job is, is, is we're coming to this place where we realize God doesn't need to be defended, but we need to reveal Him. We need to reveal His love through the way that we live, through the way that we act, through the things that we say, in these expressions of love in every aspect of our life. Number four, you may have a wrong view of God if you equate hardship with holiness. Now, this is kind of interesting because a lot of times when we think about holiness, it's like, it's like people who portray uh, that, that they're living a holy life are oftentimes like just, they just seem to me like they're frustrated with sinners and they've been sucking on lemons. You know what I'm saying? Like they're just angry, they're upset at the world for being evil. Can I tell you that the world's always been evil? Sinners have always been sinners. But in the midst of an evil world and in the midst of people doing sinful and abominable things in the world, it's not our job to be mad at them. Matter of fact, the Bible says we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things are to be in our lives. Not once does it say, hey, you need to be angry. You need to be angry at the world. You need to be upset. But holiness oftentimes gets tied in with hardship, like we need to be upset. But see, holiness, let me tell you this, it's full of goodness, it's full of beauty, it's full of kindness and gentleness. And when you see it on a person, you say, man, that, 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 that's something that is attractive. And, and holiness, let me say it like this too, because holiness, this is, what I, this is what I misunderstood about holiness whenever I first got saved. I thought that holiness was something that I obtained by stopping sinning, Okay? And so I tried so hard to quit, and this will come into my fifth point, and I kept failing to quit. But it wasn't when I tried to stop sinning that I got holy. It was when I fell in love with God that all of a sudden the sin lost its appeal to me. It's not about trying to stop sinning. It's about so falling in love with this God who is holy and pure that all of a sudden the things you used to do aren't even a thought in your mind anymore because you're in love with the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, and His name is Jesus Christ. And that's why we tell people when they come into church and they're struggling and they're having a hard time or they're having a difficult time or they're still in bondage or they're still committing sin. Don't try to get your act together before you come to Jesus. Come to Jesus as you are because he has paid the price and you can be in his presence. And in his presence, you will lose your taste for those things. You'll be filled with joy. You'll be filled with love. Things will change. And then fifthly, my last one, you're trying harder instead of being transformed. And that's just what I said. A lot of times what we do is we get this view of God that I've got to work harder, I've got to try harder, I've got to do more, I've got to do more. And I'm telling you, it's just, it's just like whenever we try, whenever we preach a very hard and convicting message, here's what I find. I could preach and say, you know what, every single one of y'all, if you, don't, if you need to go out today and you better lead somebody to the Lord. 
You probably won't take my convicting message and go lead somebody to the Lord. You know why? Because you'd be doing it based on external obedience rather than inner transformation. If instead you take the word that I preach, you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, I need a passion for souls. And I love you and I want to know your heart for souls. And out of your relationship and your prayer life with God, all of a sudden you are strengthened inwardly. Guess what? Now you can't help but go share Jesus with people that are in your life. It's an inward transformation, not just an external obedience. You can hear the word all you want, but you take the word, you take it home with you. You let it get in your heart. And see, this transformation comes in our lives. 2 Peter 1.4, here's the scripture that I'm basing the, the, the sermon title on. But he says that God has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So he's saying when you open up scripture, and we're going to read several promises today, and this is a promise from God. That when you open up scripture, God has given believers these promises that as they begin to receive these promises in their heart and participate in the promises of God, they literally become active participants in the divine nature. That God imparts His character to you. That you become more like Jesus. You become more loving, more kind, more good. And here's the beauty of it. None of us fully reflect the image of God, do we? There's only been one man that has fully reflected the image of God, and his name was Jesus Christ. But when we come together as a body, every now and then what you see is you see the image of Jesus flowing through our brothers and sisters because we are the body of Christ, and you start to see this reflection of God in our faces. And see, we partake and share in the divine nature through the practice of God's Word, number one, that we hear God's Word and we apply it to our lives. We do it through the practice of worship. That's why when we come in here on Sunday mornings, there's something that happens. Like, even when you, sometimes, like in small group, for example, we, we, we sit around and I like, I like the small groups where, where we just have a good Bible study and it's solid. But I'm telling you, there's something that happens when a group of believers get in and they start singing songs to God and they start worshiping God and they, and they set their affection on God and they begin to worship because His presence just invades that space. And so we worship because when we worship, we start to behold God. And we start to see His divine nature in our spirits, and it changes us. Thirdly, it's through the practice of biblical study, memorization, and meditation. I think Richard yesterday, you know, the Hebrew word for meditation is Hagah. And I've said this a lot, but it's, it's the word for a cow chewing the cud. He chews it up. He swallows it. He throws it back up. Amen. Isn't that lovely this morning? And then he chews it up finer and he swallows it again and he regurgitates it once again and he chews it up some more and he swallows it again. See, you get in God's word and you meditate on it. You chew it up, you swallow it. You bring it back up, you chew it up some more. You think about it until the word of God starts to get in your heart. And some of you, you've been dealing with fear and anxiety and I'm telling you, the way that you are going to battle your fear and anxiety is by turning off the news like Donald said last week and turning on the word of God, memorizing it, letting it take root in your mind and in your heart and all of a sudden you're going to start to see fear and anxiety begin to lift and dissipate and break off of your life. Fourthly, it's through the practice of fellowship. When we're, when we're with one another... And we, even in this moment and, and, and when we're in small groups and we're calling our brothers and sisters on the phone, in those moments we start to experience the divine nature. And then fifthly, it's through the practice of prayer. We've got to have a relationship with God where we're talking to Him and we're listening to His voice. And as we do that, listen, we are becoming participants, partakers of the divine nature. Letting his promises get in our word. I don't know about you, but I know you got goals in life, right? Some of y'all, you got career goals. You got goals for what you want to do at school this year. And those goals are good, but you got to set a goal every year that I need to be more like Jesus this year. What character points of God can I, can I begin to say, Lord, I need more love in my life? Because that's one of the things that I pray, right? I can be, sometimes when I preach, I, I can be a little bit rude. And I say, Lord, you got to help me knock off the rough edges so that I can be very kind and loving and sweet because sometimes I'm, I, I just get a little bit aggravated. Amen. That's all of us, isn't it? So we're praying through this of how, how do we become partakers of the divine nature. Now, I, I want to make this statement. It's a little bit of a heady statement, but, but, but stick with me. I want you to understand this. This statement, our ministry is the ministry of Jesus Christ to the Father through the Holy Spirit, for the sake of the church and the world. 
And this has a little bit to do with prayer, but you start to see why God is a three-part being, right? He's one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And your ministry and my ministry is not our own. I cannot say, hey, this is my ministry. Now, my ministry is the ministry of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to this earth, he came to reconcile you and I back to the Father. So he became what? A human being because human beings were what he came to save. And so when he died on the cross in our place and took our punishment but yet defeated death and was raised again from the dead, what he did was he became the door. He became the access point so that now we were no longer in Adam, dead in our sins and our trespasses, but we were born again in the Spirit. We're no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. In the New Testament, it says that you are in Christ about 89 times. That means that when you are living your life, you do it from the position of being in Christ and Christ being in you. Now, I want you to understand this because Jesus' ministry was first and foremost not to you, not to the world, not to the people around him. His ministry first and foremost was to the Father. There was nothing that that man did that he did not first connect with his Father. It was the ministry of Jesus Christ to the Father through the Holy Spirit for the sake of the church and the sake of the world. Now, Oswald Chambers, he made this statement. It's a very interesting statement. But he said that we slander God by our very eagerness to work for Him without knowing Him. We slander God by our very eagerness to work for Him without knowing Him. Do you understand that what Jesus Christ was, was He was God in the flesh, But when he took on flesh and he became a human being, what he revealed was that he was a man in perfect relationship with his heavenly father as the son of God who fully revealed the son of God. And what he did was created a way so that now you can be a son, you can be a daughter of God just as Christ was in relationship with the father so that you are filled with the Holy Spirit and the overflow of your relationship with God flows out to the people around you. And he says, we slander God by our eagerness to work for him without knowing him. First and foremost, I because I, I mean, here's the thing. We preach a message on evangelism, and I say, man, we need to go out and reach the lost. Ain't nobody in here going to go out and reach the lost until you know the Lord. You will not do it. You won't have a desire to do it. But when you know the Lord and you've been with him and you know his heart and he's sharing his heart with you, there's all of a sudden an overflow of this relationship that you have with God. And when we pray about, about God, so you, you have this three part, you have this three, three parts of God. So, so literally, God is three persons. One God, three persons. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we're talking about the character of God, right? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And we're talking about receiving, being participants in the divine nature. And I love this verse because this is actually, there are verses in the Bible that I actually pray through. I believe in praying scripture. You find scripture that you like, you need to take it to the Lord. You need to pray through it because that's how you become a partaker of the divine nature. You get it in your heart. And so he gives us, Paul basically through the Holy Spirit identifies a key word about each of the three persons of the Godhead. And so if we want to start, let's start first of all, number one, with the love of God the Father. If I want to be a partaker of the divine nature, the very first place that I must start is with the love of God the Father. The love of God the Father. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, there's a a word that I'm actually going to use probably several times over the next few weeks and it's a word that gets translated, it gets translated loving kindness, it gets translated mercy, it gets translated compassion, but it's such a full word, and the Hebrew word is hesed, and it's really covenant love. It's loyal love, it's steadfast love is how it gets translated a lot of times, and it's the love of a, of a superior to an inferior. And this is why it gets translated mercy a lot because God is so holy and so far and so high above us that really he doesn't have to give us anything. He doesn't owe us a thing. But in his mercy, he condescends to us and reaches out to us and chooses to give us his love and his loyal love. But in in the Old Testament, these two words, his said, is always usually coupled with another word, emet. Now, his said, the most commonly used phrase in the Old Testament is a phrase that says, his mercy endures forever. You ever heard that? His mercy endures forever. 
That word mercy right there, some, some translations will translate it love and kindness. Some steadfast love, it's the word has said. He's saying his has said, his covenant love endures forever. Praise the Lord for he is good and his covenant love endures forever. This is the character of God. This is the character of God. And he says it over and over again. And it's always coupled with emet, this other word in the Hebrew language. And it means faithfulness. And his faithfulness is this. His faithfulness is that no matter what you go through, God will not turn his back on you. You are his child. He loves you. He will bring your life to its end goal and its desired goal. And I'm telling you right now, the thing about your life is, is that God looks at it differently than you. His goal is not for you to be as happy as you can possibly be and have all the things that you ever dreamed of, contrary to popular American gospel preaching. Amen. God's goal for you is to become like Christ. And in that, you start to realize that becoming like Christ is greater than anything you could have ever received that this world has to offer. This is why Jesus said, listen, what does a, pro what does a man profit if he gains the entire world but loses his soul? You can get all kinds of good things in this world, but if you don't have Christ, you've lost everything. And he's saying, but God is faithful and his steadfast love endures forever. And we read this last week, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, when, Moses when, when God passes by Moses in the cleft of the rock because Moses said what you and I should be saying, Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to know what you're like. I want to see who you truly are. And, and for many of you, you don't know what the Lord's like and you've never had an experience with God, I'm telling you. What, what I said is, there was a point in my life, I wasn't sure if God was real. I, didn't, I wasn't sure if He cared about me. I wasn't sh sure if He even thought I mattered. I didn't know, but I found too many scriptures that said, if you seek the Lord with all of your heart, you will find Him. If you, if you go after Him, He will reveal Himself to you. And I said, well, Lord, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to seek you with everything that I've got because your word says that you will reveal yourself to me and I will find you. And I'm telling you, there was a moment where I found him and it was revealed to me. And I'm, I'm not saying that I've got the full fullness of the revelation of Christ, but enough was revealed to change my life. And the Bible says it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's what the scripture says. And he says, everybody who has this hope purifies themselves even as he is pure. So we've got this hope, just like Caitlin says, that one day I will see Jesus in all of his fullness with no lenses over my eyes. And it will be fully revealed and I will perfectly become like Christ. I won't become Christ, but I will reflect his image. And so, you, you know... We're in Christ. Here's what he says, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That steadfast love is the word has said, and it may it right there beside it. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, when we talk about the character of God, I remember when I, I heard this message preached one time when I was young, younger, and, uh, and a guy was preaching it. And instead of focusing on the front half of that verse, this guy focused on the back half of this verse. And the preacher was basically saying, look, what you've done. And the things that you've done is going to come on your kids and on your kids' kids. And I'm like, man, this is an encouraging message this morning. We're just scaring everybody to death about all the sins of their past and how it's going to torment their kids in the future. Thank God for that. Um, and, I, and here's the thing. This, there, this is a reality. Generational curses are a reality. Would you say amen to that? Just look at it in people's lives. Look at it in families. You see drug addiction, poverty passed down from generation to generation to generation. And that is a reality, but here's what I need you to know about the character of God is that that's not his desire. He says he's by no means going to clear the guilty. God is never going to have a person stand before him that will not be judged righteously and completely. But here's what you need to know, and here's what I know about my children God showed me through the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's the love of God the Father. He says, look, I'm merciful, compassionate, gracious. My steadfast love is, is, is abounding toward you. He said, but I'm by no means going to clear the guilty. And he said, when you sin... 
I'm going to visit it to the third and fourth generation of your children. I've had people come to me and say, I'm afraid of what will happen to my kids because of what I did in my past. And I said, are you a Christian? They say, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm in Jesus. I said, do you know what that verse means in the new covenant? It means God, God did visit the sins on he, he, he plans to visit, but I need you to understand that what he did for you is that he visited all of your sins to the third and fourth generation of your children on his own son on the cross. He visited all of your sins of your past, everything that you'd ever done that would bring a curse upon your children. He said, yes, I'm going to do that because I will not clear the guilty, but my son has now become the guilty one in your place. And I'm visiting those sins in him. Therefore, your children are now free. My children are now free. They are up under a covenant of steadfast, loyal, and eternal love. My children are going to be blessed. My children are going to be taught by the Lord. My children will not suffer the same addictions that I have. They will know Jesus Christ. They will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God will be in their mouth because those are the promises of God to me in the covenant of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can give a hand clap to that. This is the character of God. This is the character of God. So you see judgment in the Old Covenant and so much of the judgment that you see in the Old Covenant, that's why the cross was so horrific because Jesus was taking that judgment for you. His back was bleeding. He was wearing a crown of thorns. He was beaten. He was rejected, stripped naked and crucified so that you and your family would never have to take any more judgment. That is steadfast love. That is covenant love that He shared for you. And God's has said love is seen in the five benefits of His covenant faithfulness in Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. See, you don't need to forget all of God's benefits because you get out here in this world, crazy things happen, you start to forget the benefits of being in this covenant that Jesus Christ has given you. And here are five benefits that He gives us. One, He forgives all your iniquity. Everything you've done, Everything you failed to do, he says, you come to me, it's washed in the blood. I will forgive it and cast it as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. So that when you stand before him on judgment day, you'll say, but Lord, what about all those sins that I committed in my past? And he will say, yeah, I remember those, but guess what? I don't anymore because Jesus bore them on the cross. You are forgiven. He heals all your diseases. we got to come to a place where we begin to understand and know that when we come to Jesus, we can come in full assurance. So many people came to Him, just touched the hem of His garment, and they were healed physically, mentally, and emotionally. He said, your faith has made you whole. I understand that oftentimes we pray and we don't see this, but we do realize this, that, that we have an eternal healing. If we die, we're still healed. Amen. But even in this life, we should pray and understand that this is one of the benefits that God heals us of our diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. This means that no matter how dark of a place you got into, He reached down in it and He pulled you back out. And that's what He'll do for anyone who is in a pit or in destruction. It says that He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. There's that word again, has said. He crowns you with this. You know, the crown... A crown was something that somebody wore when they were honored. They, they were to be respected. A king or a queen wore a crown. And it says that God puts a crown on my head. He puts a crown on your head. But this crown is not your achievements. The crown isn't placed on your head because God says, man, you're awesome. Look at all the achievements you've done. Look at all, all the greatness. The glory that you and I wear on our head, the majesty that is on our head is nothing we have done. It is simply because we are the recipients of God's steadfast love and mercy. He says, the honor and the glory that you wear is because you're so deeply loved by me and because I have shared my mercy with you and I have given you my spirit and you are satisfied with me. And that's why it says, lastly, it says, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. How many of you like, you know what, I'd take some of that youth renewal. Is that all right? Can I, can I have some of that? Is that a promise I can, I can keep? Hey, it's right there in the scripture. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to preach it. An eagle, after they've been flying and wearing themselves out and they're, they're pretty rough, they'll start to molt and they'll, they'll shed off a lot of their feathers and, and skin. And for a minute, they'll look pretty bad. But then all of a sudden, they're restored 
and they look new and they look younger and they look fresh. And I'm telling you, when you come to God in this covenant, I know right now a lot of people are wearing down, a lot of people are wearing thin, but God is going to start to satisfy you with good things. Not the things of this world, not what the news says. He's going to satisfy you with his covenant love and you're going to be refreshed and strengthened and your youth is going to be renewed in this covenant. Amen. So the first part of our prayer life, I, I always try to enter into it best I can with the love of God the Father. There's a guy who wrote a book, Brennan Manning, he wrote this book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he talks about his struggles, he talks about his addictions. He, he became a preacher and he dealt with a lot of stuff. He, his dad had uh, abused him when he was young and it just went through a lot of different things. And he made this statement that a guy, we've even sung this song. Y'all remember that song we write and we say, Abba, I belong to you. We sing that song here sometimes. We've not sung it in a while. In Andrea's car, it always starts in alphabetical order sometimes. And so we hear, like as soon as you turn on the car, Abba. And I'm like, man, I, I, that song just don't hit the same anymore. You know what I'm saying? Because it's every time we turn the vehicle on. But, uh, but nonetheless, he basically was talking about in order to get his identity back in the right spot because he had this image of God that was really, really a projection of his dad. And how his dad had treated him. And he had, he had the father God that looked a lot like his own father. And he saw him as angry and abusive. And he said he would have to sit in a room for hours and say, Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I am loved by you. Abba means father, means daddy. And he would sit there in that prayer and say, you've got to come to a place where you just sit in the presence of God. And you're not looking to try to do anything from God. What you are looking to do is to receive the love of God the Father. Because if you are going to love this world appropriately, you're not going to do it because you're trained by culture to know how to love people. You're going to do it because you're filled with the love of God the Father. Because you've been with Him in the secret place and He has poured that into your heart. Amen. Secondly, he says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, you talk about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about grace and mercy. Because when we think about mercy, right, and we say this all the time, mercy is that we don't get what we do deserve. What would you say this world deserves at this point? I mean, everybody, everybody's got their own opinions. But when you really see a holy God for who He is, and you understand it. I remember when I had an encounter with God the first time, I thought, man, what this dude needs to do is make me a grease spot on the ground. But you know the reason he didn't? Because he's merciful and he's compassionate and he's loving. But his holiness revealed my darkness in that moment of time. And you see a holy God and a broken, filthy, sinful world. And you're wondering, why in the world would God have anything to do with it? But see, the fact of the matter is, is this holy God is not just holy and separate. His holiness entails his love and his compassion and his mercy. And in his great love, he says, I will enter into your sin. I will become your sin. I will enter into your pain. I will become your pain. I will experience everything that you've experienced because I want you to be set free from those things. And so Jesus' mercy, He doesn't give us what we deserve, but He goes one step further and chooses to give us what we don't deserve. And on the cross, everything merges. Everything comes to this point at which the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. And on the cross, here's what you need to realize, because when you're feeling blue, I'm telling you, the center of what we believe is through the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go to the cross. Realize that a perfect man went to the cross and he suffered these things right here so that you could have what he had. Number one, he was punished. And I need you to understand that on the cross, God took his own punishment in his son. You don't need to just see a picture of the heavenly father whipping his son what you see is the Father, the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. God the Father sent His Son to receive the punishment that we deserved and God was in Christ receiving His own punishment in, in, in Himself so that we could have forgiveness. Secondly, Jesus was wounded. He was beaten with 39 stripes across His back, crown of thorns on His head, spikes in His hands and feet, so that ultimately by His stripes and by His wounds, we would receive healing. On the, on the cross, Jesus became sin so that you and I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He didn't deserve your sin, but He took it. In the same way that you don't deserve His righteousness, you get to receive it as a free gift. He tasted death so that you might share in His life. He became a curse 
on the cross so that every curse would be broken over your life and over your family and you would receive all of the blessing of God. He endured poverty so that you would have an abundance. He endured shame so that you could wear a crown of glory. And on the cross, he was rejected and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you could be accepted and say, Lord, I don't know why, but I see that you've accepted me and you wrapped your arms around me even though I'm not worthy. And this is the grace of God. It all happens at the cross. And I love what it says in Romans 5, 17. He says, for if by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Because I need you to understand this. He's saying, I want you to literally reign in life. He wants you to dominate in life. He wants you to be an overcomer, overcome this world, not be up under the weight and the oppression of all the things that are going on, but to reign in life. And he says, here's how you do it. You receive the free gift of righteousness. This means you don't have to earn your salvation because Jesus has died for you and you can receive this free gift of righteousness and you can stand before God clean and pure and holy so that He hears your prayers as if it was Christ Himself. But then he says, but you need transformation you need to become a partaker of the divine nature. And so you need to receive not just a little bit of grace. You need to receive an abundance of grace. John Wesley called it a means of grace. He said every time you pray, you're receiving the grace of God. Every time you worship and sing songs, you're receiving the grace of God. When you confess your sins to a brother or sister, you're receiving the grace of God. When, 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 you, when you kneel down at an altar, you're receiving the grace of God. When you hear a message preached, the grace of God is, is coming to you in that moment. And as you receive that grace, you begin to be strengthened, you begin to be transformed, and you start to learn how to reign in life. There, there are three words. I've shared this before, but I like sharing it. I remember... I, I took a Greek class, and when you start studying these words, your mind starts to blow, and you say, okay, this makes better sense. There are three specific words for receiving in the Greek language. One of them is haromai, okay? Say haromai. Awesome. I just wanted you to say a Greek word see what it looked like. So this word means that I passively receive it. It would be as if I'm sitting there not paying any attention, and Andrea just comes in and sets a sandwich in my lap. I didn't ask for the sandwich. I didn't want the sandwich. She just gives it to me. And there it is. I have the sandwich. Another one is decomai. And decomai is if I said, if Andre is over here eating a sandwich, and I want the sandwich so bad that I go over and I violently seize the sandwich. And I take and I receive the sandwich. So one is passive receiving. The other is violent taking receiving. And then the, one, the word that he uses here is lombano, and it's very specific because it entails a gift being given, but it will not be received unless you actively take hold of it. This means that all the things that Jesus did for you on the cross are already done. He's handing it out to you, but now He's waiting if you will actively take hold of it, lay hold of it, and receive it into your life. He says if you will actively receive an abundance of grace, you will learn how to reign in life. You will receive this overflow of this grace that God wants to give you. You'll be healed. You'll be transformed. You'll be strengthened. You'll walk in the blessing. You'll no longer be under shame, but you'll be walking in glory. You'll experience acceptance and inner healing. But see, you have to actively receive it. It ain't going to fall on you like ripe cherries off of a tree. He's saying you've got to come into a place where you receive it. Romans 5.20, and this is good because some of you think you've sinned too much to receive the grace of God, and God doesn't love you because of it. But he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Notice this. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What he's saying is, is that, hey, Clay, you remember when you went half wild back in your, later, in, in your earlier years? He said, but sin increased in your life, and I gave you the law so that you would recognize how bad of a sinner you were. But when you finally came to the point where you recognized how bad of a sinner you were, and you said, Lord, I'm filthy, I need forgiveness, at that point, grace overwhelmed it. It was poured out in abundance in my life. He said, wherever sin increases, he said, grace abounds far more than you could ever sin. That's how good Jesus is. And so grace is God reaching out to us when we did not deserve it and enabling us to live a Christian life. And here's the thing. When we start to recognize the love of God the Father toward us and His grace toward us, right now, man, people need grace, don't they? People make mistakes. You've made mistakes this week probably. 
And some, when I'm talking to people, and, and maybe even people have made mistakes, and I'm talking to them, I try to err on the side of grace. You know why? Because if I err on the side of judgment, the Scripture says that with the measure that I judge, it shall be measured back unto me. But if I extend mercy with the measure that I extend mercy, that mercy shall be extended back to me. And people need, look, some, I know some of y'all, you've been hurt by people. And people need a second chance. You say, but they'll do it again. Well, let them do it again, bless God. Jesus lets you do it again. He lets you do it over and over and over again. Yet he extends his mercy to you. He said, but how many times are we going to have to forgive these people? Seven times, Lord? How about 70 times seven? And when you receive that grace of God, it becomes much, much, much more easy to extend grace to others. Here's my last one. The fellowship, he says, or the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit. So you've got the love of God the Father. You've got the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're literally praying through these things, receiving, becoming a partaker of the divine nature, getting a correct view of God in your mind. And then all of a sudden you realize that, you know what, I've got the best friend in the world and His name is Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of Christ. Somebody said, well, you know what, man? If I, if I could just have Jesus here talking to me, I'd be all right. You know that you've actually got something better than Jesus talking to you here in the flesh? you got the Holy Spirit living inside of your heart. That's Christ on the inside. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you have a misconception of God when you believe that having Jesus here in the flesh is better than having the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. Christ is not just a dude standing there talking to you. Christ is a spirit living on the inside of you, transforming you from the inside out. And you can have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit and He will, he will give you His gifts. He will give you His fruit. He will transform your heart. And so when we pray and we're asking, Holy Spirit, fill us. Give us your love. Give us your joy. Give us your peace. And I love Isaiah 11. Here's what it says. Let's look at this verse together. Talking about Jesus, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. Somebody said, Well, that's, that doesn't apply to us. That's for Jesus. Did I not just say earlier that in the New Testament, about 89 times it says you are in who? You are in Christ. If I'm in Christ, then many of the promises that are about Christ and for Christ also come to me because He's in me and I'm in Him. And so it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. I love that. You know, right now in our world, there's so much crazy stuff going on that you honestly don't need to decide disputes by what your ears hear or what your eyes see. You need to decide disputes by the Holy Spirit on the inside of you, speaking to you, ministering to you, showing you the direction to take. And so when you're praying, I literally pray through these, through these several things that he mentioned. Now, if you, if you remember, we preached back before Easter a sermon series on the tabernacle. And one sermon series I talked about staying lit because the menorah in the temple, the candlestick, had to stay lit. If you put that picture up there, if you don't mind. So here's what it is. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. And that candlestick represented the sevenfold Spirit of God. You had wisdom and understanding. You had counsel and might. You had knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And all of those things were entailed in the Spirit of the Lord Himself. This is what He wants to impart to you. And so when I'm praying to the Holy Spirit and I want His nature, and I want what the Holy Spirit has for me, I'm praying, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. And what wisdom does is wisdom brings order into the chaos. How many of you, you feel like sometimes your life is just absolute chaos? I'm telling you, when you pray and you say, God, I need you, Holy Spirit, I need you to give me wisdom. I need you to give me the ability to bring order into the chaos, to see things and discern things the way that they need to be seen and discerned. In the Old Testament, one word for wisdom is literally just an inner consciousness. Have you ever been in a situation and you're just like, man, this just don't feel right. I need to get out of here. I need to do, I need to, and you feel, you ever sense that? That's wisdom. Wisdom from the Holy Spirit. That's an inner consciousness, a knowing. Secondly, I'm praying not only for wisdom to know what to do, but I'm praying for understanding. This means that I need clarity. Because right now, somebody said fake news travels six times faster than the truth right now. People love it. People love lies. 
They love conspiracy theories. They love all kinds of crazy stuff. And it is very difficult to discern what truth is in our world. Amen. But he's saying, if, if, if I pray for understanding, what I have is clarity to begin to discern how to handle this, how to receive all the information that's coming into me. I have clarity about my life, about who I am. And see, when you're overwhelmed in life, it's probably because you lack understanding. When the Holy Spirit gives you understanding, you're going to have clarity. You're going to start to see things in your life the way that God sees them. You're going to get a heavenly perspective. Thirdly, I pray for counsel. And counsel is the ability to make good decisions. How many of you, you've got, you know, the Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. When you've got an issue, you need to first go to the scripture and you need to get some counselors, some people that you trust that you know are, are praying and seeking the Lord and hear what they have to say. But even in the midst of that, you need to go to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, you're my best friend. I need counsel. I need you to help me make these decisions. And I cannot tell you the number of times I've taken something to the Lord and one way or the other He has given me counsel and insight to make the decisions that I needed to go with. Then I pray for might. Say, Holy Spirit, I need might. I need authority. I need authority. Right now, people are under such pressure, such fear, such anxiety, and they're not operating in any authority. Sometimes when you feel those pressures and you feel, feel those fears and those anxieties, you need to rise up in the authority that God has given you. You need to speak the word boldly to the enemy. And you need to say, look, this is, this is what God's word said. I'm not staying up under that spirit of fear, but I'm receiving God's love, his power, and I'm receiving a sound mind. And you walk in that authority. See, you have the authority as a Christian believer to preach the gospel to the lost and see God's spirit work in their heart, to lay hands on the sick and to see them recover, and to minister to the broken and see God seriously move in situations. You have that authority. He says, we're going to pray for knowledge. And this is really revelation. Knowledge is not just the fact that I've read a lot of books. Biblical knowledge comes from God being revealed to you. You have a greater knowing of Him. And then lastly, the fear of the Lord. And I pray, Lord, I don't ever want to get away from your fear because I've got to maintain integrity. I've got to maintain holiness, innocence, purity. And Lord, I want to fear you above everything else in my life. I've got no time to fear anything else that's going on in the world if I fear the Lord. Bible says the fear of man is a snare but the fear of the Lord is a strong tower and we run into that fear of the Lord because he keeps us pure he keeps us protected and see that's what we need in these last days we need we need to become partakers of the divine nature we look to the love of God the Father and you've got to understand man God loves you more than you could ever imagine and you need to rest in that and you need to say Lord I realize that I am your beloved Jesus himself before he ever did any ministry before he ever did anything to please God so to speak he was baptized in the water the same way that we're baptized in the water and when he comes out he hears the voice of the father saying this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased that is God's position toward you before you do anything for him you receive the love of God you receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and you enter into intimate fellowship and friendship with the Holy Spirit I'm telling you you do that you're going to be a partaker of the divine nature he's going to change your life amen why don't you bow your heads with me just for a moment let's just take a take a moment right there to just to just pray to the Lord just wait on him a minute